Well, first I want to say it's very nice to be here with you at the Forest Refuge. And tonight I'd like to talk about one of our favorite subjects, dukkha, and the revelations of the first noble truth. Last week, I had the good fortune of being able to lead a retreat at Spirit Rock in California with Stephen Batchelor and Martine Batchelor. And Stephen was giving discourses on the life of the Buddha, which I hear was also simultaneously happening here um, uh, from Bhante on the life of the Buddha. And as Stephen was giving these discourses, one of the days, of course, he was talking about the, the teaching that the Buddha gave after his awakening of the, of the noble, uh, Four Noble Truths. And I really noticed through the day after hearing that discourse how happy I became hearing, again, the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. And I think it always kind of surprises me that it touches, that teaching touches me in that way because it's a teaching that we hear, you know, again and again and we're, you know, fairly familiar with it and yet it's it's so profound. You know, it is, the, the revelations of the Four Noble Truths are the whole of the Dharma. And so in reflecting on those uh, Four Noble Truths through the day, and also I was giving a a discourse that evening as well, there was a real joy and happiness that arose in my heart. And I remembered that before I started practicing the Dharma many, many years ago, when I didn't know the teachings of the Buddha, I, I could remember a time when my life was so meaningless and so directionless and, and the Four Noble Truths gave me a kind of um, a map or a grid to give my life some meaning and some direction. The Four Noble Truths being a path to the end of suffering and the way out of our suffering. And so this was a very happy reflection for me as well. Stephen Batchelor had said one time, he said, samsara is like being on a wheel in a hamster cage, a sense of never having moved on. We keep finding ourselves back at square one, a life of frustration. And perhaps you too can remember a time in your life where you had that sense of being in that, like in that hamster cage where there was a sense of not really being able to move on, not really knowing the way or, or having a direction. In fact, there's a a quote that I like very much where it's a definition of insanity, which is insanity is repeating the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. And in a way, that's really what we do when we are not so tuned into what gives rise to suffering and what brings suffering to an end. We just keep repeating the same things over and over again. But but I know from my own experience that that doesn't end when we hear the teachings of the Four Noble Truth either. There's still the, the tendency to be caught in the repetition of these old habits and wondering how we got ourselves in here and why don't we stop. 
I also, it also gave rise, hearing those teachings that day also gave, gave rise to reflection about a time some years ago uh, when I was in India. And since the Buddha gave his first discourse in Sarnath, uh, at the Deer Park near Varanasi in India, I also remembered a time when I was walking, this is after I'd been practicing for some years, and I was walking around the stupa, one of these wonderful stupas they have in Sarnath in um, honor of the Buddha's awakening and his teachings. And just walking around that stupa, again, the revelation of the Four Noble Truths came to me. And I realized in that, I remember walking around and then having the revelation that every moment the Four Noble Truths can be revealed to us. In every moment, there is the potential to understand suffering and the potential for suffering in any given moment. And with that, the understanding and the knowing of what gives rise to suffering, the, the possibility of abandoning the cause of that suffering, that that holding on or that craving that could be arising in relationship to that ignorance or that not knowing of what gives rise to suffering. And in the abandoning of that craving in the next moment, there can be then the experience of the end of that holding on and the end of that craving. Right in that moment, as we begin to reach out or we want to hold on to something, that wisdom can arise and we just let go in that moment and experience the end of that craving, which then opens up the fourth noble truth, which is the opening the space for the path to be cultivated. Because we open a space in that letting go for, uh, for us to be able to cultivate and generate the path, the path to more awakening, to further and further and deepen, de- deepening awakening. And so in every moment, this can just arise before us and that that wisdom, that recognition, so that we don't reach out. And if we do reach out, then the understanding that if we do, this is going to give rise to more pain and suffering. So we might not let go of the deepest holding of of our wrong view or our misunderstanding about the way things are, but we may have some sense of even what's in consciousness, right in that moment where we want to reach out and do something that repeats some kind of pattern that we know isn't going to be so beneficial for us, and we can let go. And every moment, is, it's possible for the revelation of these four truths because every moment new conditions arise. Every moment is a new opportunity for us to reflect on, on the causes and the conditions for the arising of suffering, and the end of it. So the Buddha was concerned with this dukkha and the end of dukkha. All of his teachings are about this. So I just wanted to explore it a little bit more this evening around dukkha because I think that, you know, at least for myself, I, I, I can never... Uh, hear enough teachings that will really help re- help me remember what I need to remember to help me let go. The first noble truth really acknowledges, I think, two aspects of dukkha. One aspect of dukkha that we can change, 
that we can understand what gives rise to the dukkha in a way that we can actually bring about some change. And it also acknowledges an aspect of dukkha that we can't change. And I think as we look more deeply into our experience, we start to understand this more completely. The kind of dukkha that we can't change is acknowledged in the first noble truth as the suffering that arises from simply being in a human body. In fact, the Pali for this is dukkha, dukkha. And I like that because in a way, it really points to the, okay, this is really dukkha. You know, dukkha, dukkha, the pain of birth, aging, sickness, and death. The dukkha of being in a human condition, in this human incarnation. We can even feel that so apparently here on the retreat, this the pain that arises in the body from sitting. You know, just from sitting long hours or walking or being in the silence, being in the stillness, some of the the physical pain or the the inner restlessness, that very, very subtle restlessness that can arise. And just from being being in a body, kind of our nervous system, our our physiology has a, a kind of quality of restlessness to it. We really can't change this. There may be things we can do to support ourselves, to help us so that our body feels more comfortable, we feel more ease, but ultimately we are going to get old, we're going to, we experience that, the aging, we get sick and we die. We can't change this, and the wanting to change it is so much of what we encounter, certainly in our practice on retreat, is I don't want it to be like this. I don't want my body to be, I don't want this knee pain to be here, I don't want this back pain, I don't want this stomach, uh, these stomach problems, I don't want, you know, this bronchitis problem. And then we can get into the, that, that difficult attitude of mind that, of course, adds more dukkha, and we're, we're not able to fully accept the reality of being in this physical body. That's one aspect that the First Noble Truth acknowledges, that that is part of the human condition. There's another one, and in the, in the Pali word for this dukkha is called sankara dukkha. Sankara dukkha. And this is an interesting one because this really points to the oppressive nature of all formations of existence because they are continually arising and passing away. And the impact that that has on our consciousness through the senses and thought, this constant changing nature, which sometimes we can feel quite directly whether, you know, whether the the experience has some um, strength to it, like the wind or the cold or the heat or um, uh, our our clothes, the, the fabric we're wearing, or as we become more sensitive, we become more sensitive to these conditions of these formations. Where I'm most aware, where I became most aware of this kind of oppressive nature, and I think that's a very good way of talking about it, is when I, I've spent many, many months and years in India. And as soon as I hear the word oppressive nature, I think of India because everything is so alive. 
the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes and the and the in the tangible feels on the skin and 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 it's just like it's so intense that there can be a way of wanting to get away from it wanting it to stop it's it feels too oppressive on the on the body and and because of the you know, for myself, uh, uh, my lack of ability to be able to be very equanimous around it, the, oh, my own dukkha that I brought through my aversion and my attachment, which just would increase the intensity of the experience as well. We're also not able to change this reality, this truth, the first noble truth. There is suffering in this life. This is the, the way things are, the nature of the way things are. But fortunately, the Buddha didn't stop here. If the Buddha said this was it, this is the way reality is, it would be kind of like, well, we better get used to it. You know, it's just going to be dukkha, and it's going to be dukkha dukkha. But he pointed to the dukkha that arises from our mind the pain of having a mind, and the suffering that we bring to our experience. And this is the third kind of dukkha in Pali. It's called viparinama dukkha. Viparinama dukkha. And the, the definition of this kind of dukkha is the pain that's caused from grasping onto that which changes we might say, a psychological pain that arises from our confusion about the way things are. Because if we really deeply understand the way things are, we're not going to hold on to the things that are changing. And everything is changing in every moment. We call this the unwise view that gives rise to our suffering. And I think sometimes when we really talk about dukkha, this is what we're we're referring to. It's the dukkha we bring on for ourselves because of the inability to see deeply into the way things are. Essentially, that anything or any experience is incapable of bringing us any satisfaction that the nature of conditioned phenomenon is unsatisfactory. That is the reality. That is the way things are, anything or any experience. And the why is because when we don't see deeply the impermanent nature, we look for some kind of gratification in our experience or in the things of our experience. And we can see that here how we want certain experiences and we don't want other experiences because it brings some kind of satisfaction to us. Because we're looking for some kind of satisfaction. We don't see the nature of all experience. And the second aspect is when we give something a self-existence, when we give something an independent existence outside of ourselves. Again, we think that that thing or that experience is going to bring us some kind of satisfaction. It will bring me some happiness, some gratification, some, some fulfillment. We don't see clearly its nature. 
this is um, an email that I received from a friend around Christmas time, a person who has been practicing for some time. And so she writes, So the latest from my eight-year-old grandson, Seth. After all the buildup and the anticipation, the opening of stockings and gifts, he was a bit moody and grumpy. I asked him what he was feeling, and he said, It's all the presents. They take you up, and then they drop you. He really understood that he had been caught and that they couldn't deliver. Ah, well, he said, there's still one of the gifts that hasn't dropped me yet. And we talked about how they can never deliver real happiness, only short-term pleasure, and not nearly as much as, as that as promised. And then she says, it took me until the age of 50 to begin to understand that. (laughs) And it's true, you know, it's so lovely when something like that happens with a, a young child where they just see, you know, in a particular moment, the way things are. So clear that we we can't get that kind of satisfaction. So the fundamental problem, of course, is that we view ourselves as solid and unchanging. We don't actually see that the nature that is true for all things is also true for moi, for me. That this is also a process of changing transitory experience. And so because of that, because that view is more or less solid, you know, depending on our practice, one of the ways that we actually increase our suffering through this unwise view, this unwise perception, is because is is that we personalize our suffering. We hold the view when something arises, some kind something that's unpleasant or agitating or something we don't like, something we feel some aversion to or resistant towards. We, we have the belief that this is happening to me, which in itself is okay, because in that moment, there may be a momentary arising where we have that experience that this is happening to me. There can be that solid sense of me, and then the next moment that can shift or dissolve, and it's not so solid, and we can move between that view. But what often happens is the next assumption Not only is this happening to me, but this should not be happening to me. And that's where we start to get in trouble. You know, if that arises in a moment and we see that and then it passes, that's good. You know, sometimes that happens too. We see the transitory nature of that kind of belief or that kind of assumption we have about things. But often this is where we get caught. And we can see it so often where we just have that niggle. Sometimes it could just be that niggle. I don't want this to be happening to me right now. I want this other thing to be happening to me. And really what there is in that is a, a, a kind of sense of entitlement. It can be kind of a, a strong sense or a, or a subtle sense that I'm, I'm somehow above this. Or I should be further than this. Or, or I, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be having this kind of pain in my life. And, and I remember um, 
it wasn't so long ago I was, I was writing an email to a friend um, in England and she um, and I was kind of complaining a little bit about life being difficult and probably dropped a piece of paper, but that's okay. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> and I was complaining a little bit about things being hard and challenging and, you know, that's, uh, I didn't really want them to be that way. You know how we can get into that kind of grumbling attitude. And, and she wrote back a, a fairly brief email to me, and, and, in, and she was basically saying, this woman is a social activist and a healer, you know, very engaged and working with um, um, uh, refugees uh, if in, in England. So she's, you know, really on the, uh, on the line there. And she says, why would or should our work be easy? You know, she said, funny, from here I can see that it's the integrity of our work that really illuminates, not how sorted we are, you know, not how well we're doing with it all. It's really the integrity that we're bringing to it. And I just, that was really so meaningful to me because she, she really again reminded me, yeah, I was, I was kind of feeling this, this sense of entitlement somehow that, that I should be able to rise above and not have to feel this dukkha that I was feeling. And so sometimes when we personalize our, our, our suffering, we, we make ourselves wrong, or we blame ourselves because this is happening to us. Or we may fall into a pattern of self-pity, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves that this is happening. Or it can turn the other way, where we can actually get angry at ourselves that we're, we're feeling this difficulty, and somehow it's our fault. We should find a way out of it, or find if I, I could find a way to fix it, then then it would be ba- then then things would be better. But but taking responsibility, the the I takes that sense of responsibility for what's happening, rather than seeing that these are arising and passing conditions in this particular moment. And of course, this self-pity or this anger can build up, it gets stronger, and we can actually feel somewhat stuck in it. You know, that can, the, 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 the uh, mind state can get so solidified that we, we will feel kind of caught by it for a while sometimes. And sometimes we just have to ride it out or wait it out or, or perhaps if we can remember to bring a tremendous amount of kindness to ourselves and, and patience in the process so that, so that it will change and we do move on. And then perhaps we can have some reflection about what happened and then the next time have a little bit more understanding and wisdom. Sometimes we get angry about the situation that's happening and then we can uh, make others wrong and blame others and kind of act out of that, of that pain where we, we don't really let ourselves feel it or, or, or recognize our own part in it. I'd like to read this short little piece from Ajahn Sumedho, one of our our elder uh, teachers from the Amavati Monastery in England. And I really like Ajahn Sumedho's stories and his writings quite a lot because he's very personal. And he talks a lot about things that he went through and that that revelations he's had through his own pain and suffering. 
And so this is one I'd like to read to you uh, in one of his writings where he says, Sometimes insight arises at the most unexpected times. This happened to me while living at Wapapong. The northeastern part of Thailand is not the most beautiful or desirable place in the world with its scrubby forests and flat plain. It also gets extremely hot during the hot season. We'd have to go out in the heat of the mid-afternoon before each of the observance days and sweep the leaves off the paths. There were vast areas to sweep. We would spend the whole afternoon in the hot sun, sweating and sweeping the leaves into piles with crude brooms. This was one of our duties. I didn't like doing this. I think, I'd think, I don't want to do this. I didn't come here to sweep the leaves off the ground. I came here to get enlightened. And instead, they have me sweeping leaves off the ground. Besides, it's hot, and I have fair skin. I might get skin cancer from being out here in the hot climate. I was standing out there one afternoon feeling really miserable, thinking, what am I doing here? Why did I come here? Why am I staying here? There I stood with my long, crude broom and absolutely no energy, feeling sorry for myself and hating everything. Then Ajahn Chah came up, smiled at me and said, Wapapong is a lot of suffering, isn't it? And walked away. So I thought, why did he say that? And actually, you know, it's not all that bad. He got me to contemplate. Is sweeping the leaves really that unpleasant? No, it's not. It's kind of a neutral thing, really. You sweep the leaves and it's neither here nor there. Is sweating all that terrible? Is it really a miserable, humiliating experience? Is it really as bad as I'm pretending it is? No, sweating is all right. It's a perfectly natural thing to be doing. And I don't have skin cancer right now, and the people at Wapapong are very nice. The teacher is a very kind, wise man. The monks have treated me well. The lay people come and give me food to eat. And what am I complaining about? Reflecting upon the actual experience of being there, I thought, I'm all right. There's nothing really wrong with anything except me. I'm making a problem out of it because I don't want to sweat and I don't want to sweep the leaves. Then I had a very clear insight. I suddenly perceived something in me which was always complaining and criticizing and which was preventing me from ever giving myself to anything or offering myself to any situation. And at the end of this, he he tells another story, and then he says, at the very end, he says, there was no problem after that. It felt really good. That nasty thing in me had stopped. And that's what it's like in a way, isn't it? It's like that nasty thing in me. (laughs) You know, recognizing what that is, and then having perhaps some insight where we can see it clearly for what it is and we're not feeding it anymore. We're not buying into it anymore. So we may see some things here in our own attitude towards the things that arise for us here, you know, whether it's it's the sleepiness in our attitude towards our sleepiness. You know, people, there's a number of people who have just arrived or arrived in the last four or five days. And of course, some sleepiness moves through. And it's very 
important to look at what the attitude is. How am I holding that? Is there a kind of a quiet resistance or aversion arising in the mind? Or, or, or just the body pain that arises? Just noticing, how am I holding that? What is my attitude? Is it that this should not be happening or I don't like it, I don't want it to be happening? Well, it is happening. It is happening. So how can I be with this experience, with the conditions being the way they are? So the way we personalize and take responsibility for that suffering that arises and seeing if we can hold it and open it, open to it with kindness and, a, and um, an, an acceptance of the way things are. But interestingly, also, when there is not any dukkha, when we are feeling happy, when we feel calm, when we feel at, feel at ease, also I think it's useful to notice, is there some way that the I is taking responsibility for those conditions? Perhaps there is some kind of a belief or assumption that now I'm doing something right. I like the way things are going. I like the conditions are rising. And now I've found the way. So there can also be a way of personalizing the sukha or the happiness. And we have to be so watchful of the way that the ego can kind of usurp the experience and say, this is because of me either doing something right or doing something wrong. What happens is I let go of that I thought and just allow the conditions to arise and pass. Stephen Batchelor also said once, he said, meditation will not take you beyond conditions. And I think that's an interesting point to reflect on because I think in our heart of hearts, we really want to be taken beyond conditions. <laughs> it's like, stop the bus, let me off. <laughs> and yet meditation will not take us beyond conditions. And so our practice again and again is to look at how we are relating to the conditions that are arising. This is the injunction of the first noble truth to fully understand dukkha. This is what the Buddha asked. The Buddha said to fully understand dukkha. This is our, this is, it's not just to take the first noble truth as kind of a belief or um, just something important that the Buddha said, but to take it deeply into our practice, to fully understand. And I think one way to to reflect on how to fully understand. In a way, we can just turn that around and to stand under. It's like to stand under the dukkha. Like standing under a waterfall. We allow the conditions to impact us. To We let ourselves feel it. 
to really feel it and to look at it and, and to notice the ways, the patterns that arise that want it to be different, that want it to uh, change. But to see if we can take in the whole of the experience, not really in an analyzing way, not in a asking why is this happening, which is the old way of, uh, I think, the ordinary mind, but to look directly, the way of insight, the way of vipassana. Ajahn Sumedho would say, suffering is like this. To really take it in, it's, it's, it, it's, taken, it's like this. Pain, is, pain in my knee is like this. The sorrow in my heart is like this. The restlessness that I feel is like this. And to, to go deeply into it, to immerse ourselves in it. This, these are the conditions that are arising. The question is, can I open to it? We have absolutely no control as to what's going to arise in any given moment. And sometimes we really feel our helplessness, that we have no control at all in the face of this mystery that we live in this very mysterious incarnation that we have taken birth in. So we see if we can go into it. And yet sometimes we also need to have the wisdom to know that it's not the time to go into the dukkha, into the pain, but there's also time where we need to move away or to back off. When we find ourselves getting into too much of a struggle or too much of a conflict or the pain that we're feeling, whether it's physical or emotional, mental pain, sometimes it can be too overwhelming for the condition of where we are in ourselves at any given time. We may not have the integrity. We may not have the capacity to sit with something that's arising within ourselves. And so, so the Buddha also instructs us to be able to move away, to do something what, what I've translated as skillful distraction or wise distraction or creative distraction, where it may be absolutely right not to sit another minute and we get up because we're just increasing and reinforcing the struggle within our, our body and our, our mind. And so, and so we get up. We may need to take a fast walk, or we may need to get up and shake. I like to shake sometimes. Or, you know, it's time to to get a cup of tea. And, And sometimes those are absolutely the right thing to do. And yet as we get more discriminating in our practice, we can start to listen more deeply to the wisdom, to what's right at any given moment. Do we move more into it and stay more present with the direct experience, or do we back off and move away? So we begin, as we explore this, we begin to touch upon equanimity, you know, this ability to be able to be more fully with what's arising in our experience. When I was teaching at Spirit Rock in March for the month-long retreat, I had an interview with a, a woman, a German woman, uh, uh, had given a, uh, I had given a, a talk on equanimity, or we had been giving some instructions on equanimity. And she came into the interview, and she said that in, in German, there was the word for equanimity 
is um, glichmut, glichmut. And that the, the literal translation of that is equal courage. And what that means is, it's a, she said it means like to bow down to each thing as it arrives here. Equal, equal courage to each thing. It means we're able to face, we're able to confront each thing equally without discrimination, without saying, no, I won't open to that, but I will open to this. But we begin to be able to have more of that, that attitude of respect and honoring each thing, each condition that arises as we uh, go through our day. And I asked her, as she was really in, uh, in the space of this equanimity as she was speaking, she said she, was, she had been doing some walking meditation and, and it had been raining and the, the rain had been coming down the water um, drain. And she was both hearing the sound of the drips and watching the, ref- the, um, kind of the, the light glittering on the water drops. And, and there was a, just such a huge openness to that present reality. It, just, it was so illuminated for her. And so I was asking her how she really felt as she was feeling this deep respect for all things, even this very simple and ordinary um, uh, phenomena as the sound of a drip, just the sound of a drip, which was filling her whole experience. And she said that she felt a quality of openness and yet at the same time a feeling of firmness, kind of strength. And I thought that was very interesting, the juxtaposition of that quality of the openness to experience and at the yet, yet at the same time that quality of steadiness, of a kind of a unmovingness that we can bring to our experience. And so we, we practice in a way. It's not that we can do this at all times, but we're really um, more and more increasing our capacity to be able to meet life as it is. And we, we find out where our sense of limitation is, where the obstacles arise for us that we are not able to do that. And as we, we examine that and see that, hopefully we can bring a great deal of compassion to what we see in ourselves as we open to the truth of our experience and the truth of of how our uh, sense of self is manifesting at any given time. This is really a courageous practice, a very courageous practice to come into the silence, to be with yourself, to be confronted with your own mind, with the conditions of your own being. One of the translations of bodhisattva is courageous being. Bodhisattva, courageous being. And in a way, I think that you are all bodhisattvas on this path because that means to be a courageous being means to have the willingness to suffer the willingness to suffer. And you, you, you have to have the willingness to be able to be with yourself in such an intimate and quiet way. The willingness to suffer as a pathway 
to the awakening of your own heart, the awakening of your, of your, of your consciousness, of your being. A bodhisattva says, if there is, if, if, if this is the way it is, if this is the way the conditions are, I will not turn away. I will not turn away. And, and yet even the turning away that we may need to do sometimes because we don't have the capacity is a turning away out of wisdom, out of compassion for who we are in any given moment. And as we do that, we are taking the pressure off of ourselves, the pressure that we put on ourselves from our egoic position, the one who thinks that we need to be doing something a particular way. But by through the uh, openness of awareness, we can turn and say, no, the way it is right now is okay. I don't need this to be any different right now. There's so much love and so much tenderness in that kind of attitude as we begin to examine more deeply. And what supports this opening and our ability to open more and our capacity to open is the deepening of our insights into anicca, anatta, and dukkha. As we loosen this structure of I, this this view we have of this solid sense of ourselves, we, we, be, we, we take things less personally. And, and you've seen that in your own experience, how, how you, there is so much more space for conditions to arise and pass without the rejecting and without the holding on for things to be a certain way. And there's many levels and there's many layers of this, of this insight and this opening as we let go more and more and allow things to be as they are without as much conflict, without as much struggle. So we practice. And I think we can start with all the little ways that we become annoyed. When we have that felt sense, the feeling tone of our experience where we just feel that agitation or that little bit of annoyance. You know, whether it's, it can sometimes it's strong, but sometimes it's very, very subtle. And we just bring our attention there, that, that a little annoyance, and we acknowledge its presence. You know, I see you. I see you. It's like this. That annoyance is like this. And then we see if we can go a little deeper into the feeling of it. How is it actually impacting my body or the emotions? You know, what, how, what kinds of thoughts are getting activated? Bringing a fuller awareness to the manifestation as we stay connected more fully to our present experience and to our body. And then noticing the ways that we may want to suppress it or resist it or ways we may want to act out, you know, just getting up or running away or, or, or starting to fantasize about something or plan about something. But to, oh, no, let's see if I can just, just stay here with this right now. And bringing so much kindness. Kindness, kindness is the bottom line. <laughs> it's just the bottom line. You know, we need to 
hand in hand to continually practice all the ways, all the ways that we know, all of our skillful ways to be kind to our experience. And this is really what transforms our relationship. This is what we can change. This is the the purification that we can bring to our suffering that we experience in ourselves. And as we do this, we might say that we find the path in our suffering, the path, the, the, the noble path to awakening right in the midst of our suffering. And then it's, not, it's no longer ordinary suffering. Then it shifts to noble suffering because it's the suffering that is the material for our awakening, for our liberation, for our knowledge and our wisdom and our compassion. It's the fertilizer, it's the manure for our awakening. So please continue your practice, whether you're experiencing dukkha, but may you experience much sukha, and at the same time, continually watching for the way that this tricky little sense of self may want to interfere with the flowing of those conditions. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.